Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Kelly Wisness. Hi, this is Kelly Wisness. Welcome back to the award-winning Hospital Finance Podcast. We're pleased to welcome Glorianne Bryant. She has over 40 years of experience in HIM coding, CDI, and compliance. Glorianne is the past president and director of CHIA, having been an HIM volunteer on local, state, and national levels, and served on and led many CHIA, AHIMA, HFMA, and ACDIS workgroups and committees. She is a sought-after advisor, mentor, national educator, speaker, and author on clinical coding compliance and ethics, reimbursement, CDI, physician querying, coding regulations, and denials. Over the past four years, she was an expert witness and consultant for clinical coding, documentation, charging, denials, and MSDRGs. Currently, she works part-time as an independent HIM coding and CDI compliance consultant. In this episode, Glorianne will discuss healthcare denials, trends, key findings, actionable steps, and more. Thank you for joining us to discuss this very important topic, Glorianne. Great to be here with you all today. Well, great. Let's jump in, shall we? Um, Glorianne, you've had some experience working hospital inpatient denials in the recent past. Can you share a few things that you're seeing? Yes, happy to do that. Over the past year, I've seen denials kind of increase. And I think this partially is due to the public health emergency that we had with everything kind of changing our world. And we put a kind of hold or freeze. Some people called it a freeze on these types of activities, but that is ease up now and payer reviews have increased and they are something that we have to be right on top of. I also think we are seeing a greater use of data analytics via using claim data elements to identify, quote, potential, end quote, and I emphasize that it's in potential errors or issues with the claim being paid for a particular diagnosis code or even procedure code. And that could be clinical validity and coding accuracy. Thus, I'm seeing these denials increase in a big way for hospital inpatient around the validity of the clinical diagnosis and the accuracy of the ICD-10 PCS code itself. So we're looking at those two areas that kind of overlap the clinical documentation integrity area and the coding area as well. Very interesting. And when it comes to, quote, clinical denials, what is the key finding or rationale for the denial? There can be a variety of clinical aspects to the clinical denial or the rationale from the payer. Now, having reviewed over 300 inpatient payer denials, variety of payers, there are some trends and patterns that I've seen regarding their findings or their rationale when they write back to the hospital. And the first and foremost that I see is that a diagnosis condition is documented in the medical record, but then it is not supported by clinical indicators, clinical supporting signs and symptoms from the patient, or um, by industry-known clinical indications of that condition or disease. And we have published information on these clinical conditions that come from professional medical societies, 
associations, but it's also published in other clinical literature. So they are using those types of rationales to identify these types of clinical denials. And they focus, what I'm seeing from my trending that I've been doing on these cases is that we do see some conditions diagnosis pop up repeatedly. And I know that most of you out there maybe in the industry probably are aware that sepsis is one of those that continues to pop up on the denial list. And it can circle around the criteria that has been published on sepsis diagnosing. It could be a sepsis two criteria that the hospital or organization is following and a sepsis three clinical criteria that the payer is utilizing. Another one is acute respiratory failure or acute and chronic respiratory failure, clinical validity, acute kidney injury, acute renal failure. That's a kind of a two-prong terminology that we use. And then encephalopathy diagnosis and malnutrition diagnosis. Tracking all of these types of diagnoses in your log for these types of denials is going to be really, really important. And I call it the best practice in healthcare industry, tracking your denials, tracking the clinical denials in detail, tracking the coding denials in detail. So when it comes to these clinical denials, those are some things that pop out. There's lots of others, but for this audience today, those are some of the things that I'm seeing. That's great. Very valuable. What are the key learnings we can take from writing appeals? Yes, as I mentioned, uh, denials, well, with that review of over 300 denials, there are several that we have had written appeals for. Not every denial will warrant an appeal, unfortunately, because there are some issues with the clinical documentation, the clinical indicator. As I stated above, in the situations of using these clinical indicators, clinical indications, clinical evidence. It's not in the health record. It isn't in that encounter record for that inpatient stay, but the provider has documented a particular diagnosis. It got coded and then it was submitted on the claim. So when it comes to the appeal for that, your organization or hospital should follow a specific formal format to all your appeal letters. And it's important if you have multiple people writing appeals or helping write appeals that everybody's on board, everybody's using a consistent format and style. Now, the content changes with each patient, but you're going to include patient demographics. They come from the appeal, the denied letter, and you want to provide that back. So we're all on the same page with the patient. We know which patient it is, which date of service, et cetera. So a list of demographics. And I like that at the beginning of your appeal letter. Next, what I like to see is that you outline and briefly what is being denied. Is it a, is it both the principal diagnosis and the secondary? Is it just the secondary? What is the element that's being denied? Next, a brief summary in your appeal of the case. Now make this brief because some cases can go on and on and you want to make it a paragraph kind of length. So don't make it too long, but state some basic facts. And then um, also identify, is it being a CCMCC 
or an HCC, APR, DRG that is being impacted and that you believe that particular CCMCC, et cetera, is still valid. And here is why you think it's valid. So next, you're going to list the different dates and times and location in the medical record where that supporting documentation for that CCMCC, et cetera, is, is in the health record. I like to sometimes see even a, a copy paste or a quote from the actual narrative that the provider stated in the record. So your payer sees that as part of your justification. They don't have to dig around for it. Here it is right in the appeal. So copy paste that quote, actually that narrative into that appeal letter. I would say you're going to have about maybe three, four, five, six actual places in the record that supports your position. Next to see is your final kind of uh, statement that comes out and says, okay, here's the facts above, here's what we believe happened, and here's why we believe our diagnosis is still valid. Closing all of your appeals with the name, credentials, email contact for the individual writing the appeal. But there are two other pieces that are helpful in writing these appeal letters. I like to see your references. So underneath the signature name and title, put a reference and reference where you're basing your facts. Is it based upon AHA coding clinic, the official guidelines for coding and reporting? Is it a CDC information, the National Institute of Health, NIAH? Um, Published information, it could be that professional association or society clinical literature. So have listed references, and they may be two, three, four different references that support your position. Well, you're not done yet. Another thing that I saw in some appeals that I, I kind of like this is that you list exhibits. Exhibits are what was actually in the medical record. So this is a copy-paste type scenario where you insert into your letter a specific portion of the medical record documentation and you kind of highlight, you can crop it and highlight or even point to the part of the documentation medical record where the payer should focus. This is where you're getting that information from. Now, in your narrative that was above, you can put in brackets, see exhibit one, see exhibit two, and I've seen some of these appeals with usually one, two, or, or three exhibits. Uh, I've seen them go as many as four exhibits. It does make your appeal letter a lot longer. But if there's really strong clinical validation for your position, let's put it there in front of the payer. So you've got it listed above in your narrative. It could have been a progress note, a particular day and time. Now below in your exhibit, you have that specific progress note screenshot and inserted. So I think this would be a way for you to really learn about your appeals, making sure consistency, continuity. Now, having said all of that, <laughs> I do want to mention another lesson learned that I've seen for our hospitals is that we write our appeal uh, and it gets denied a second time. That does happen. Now, if you still believe that your position is valid or why you submitted that diagnosis and you want it to remain or procedure code remain, then write a second appeal. 
Now, the logic and learning behind that is a second appeal most often will have a different set of eyes at the payer side that is reviewing that. And it is good to have a second set of eyes look at your appeal. And so sometimes this is helpful to overturn the denial. And it's just a little lesson learned that I think might be helpful to the audience. Wow, that's a lot of great information, Gloria, and thanks so much. And you stated that tracking denials is important. What are some of the specific data elements that you think should be captured? Yes, this um, tracking is really important. And as I mentioned, you might have a tracking type of software for these. And I, I think those are a wonderful tool to have. You may have not have the luxury of having a software program that you purchased to help with this. So you can use an Excel spreadsheet. My side, I know that my hospital has a tracking log and they're using a software program, but me as the reviewer and coordinator for these denials and appeals, I like to see certain things also. So there's the common data elements that are really important to capture. Obviously, the demographics like the account number, medical record number, the patient admit and discharge date, patient's name, it may be just the last name. Um, I find that pretty helpful, just the last name. Um, I also track, of course, facility name, but the payer, the payer that the patient originally had as their primary payer. Now, this may be Aetna, maybe Blue Cross Blue Shield, it may be United Healthcare. So I, I list that and track that. Uh, the next one that I find is interesting, um, and it, this was a lesson learned on tracking this data, is the payer payment methodology. I have a column where I insert whether this is being paid on a managed Medicaid, is it being paid on a managed Medicare, is it being paid on APR DRGs, is it being paid on MS DRGs for this inpatient stay? And that's kind of important, especially when we look at APR DRGs, because our process for payment on those is that for every APR DRG, you can have four levels for severity of illness and four for risk of mortality. And often it's the severity of illness that's being denied a particular diagnosis that has increased the severity of illness that they would like taken away. So there's a lower severity of illness in that payer. So that's a good one to track and trend. Um, also, the specific APR DRG, if, you, if your methodology tells you it is APR DRGs, which one is it in the title? It'd be an MSDRG, the number in the title. The admitting MD, the discharging MD, and this is interesting. I found some differences between an admitting physician's, of course, documentation when they're first admitted as an inpatient and then what the discharging physician will say if it's a different physician, which quite often it is. So that's an important one to trend the physician because you might end up seeing, which the payer will identify, conflicting documentation between that attending and that discharging physician. And that can be something that identifies educational opportunities down the road for your providers. We would also want to identify the amount being denied, the dollar amount, which most payers put on their denial note letter, but on some of them that I've seen, they didn't have it. Um, I like to see also that we track the, if it was reviewed by CDI, 
your clinical documentation. So sometimes these denials are one and two days length of stays, and maybe your CDI did not have a chance to review that and clarify documentation. So I like to track whether CDI saw the patient or saw that encounter. Uh, I like to capture who coded the record, so the name of the coder. I um, then like to put down a column that states if we're going to appeal or not appeal, and then our rationale if we're not going to appeal, and then our rationale if we are going to appeal. So there's other elements that you can obviously put in there as well, but those are kind of some of the ones that are going to be important to track. I then take that out of my Excel spreadsheet and I can make some charts and graphs. What are the primary discharge physicians, for example, on all my denials? Which cases had no CDI review on them, yet they were denied? So there's some interesting things you can track and trend from this particular data elements in your denials and why that would be so important for you. Certainly, because you can learn lessons, you can see trends and patterns, and you can take corrective action. Education is going to be important. There may be a particular practice that has been identified. And one of those I saw identified through this tracking is the tracking the diagnosis of malnutrition in our rationale and, and the payer rationale we found in two or it was three payers that the co-signature electronically on the dietary note was not substantiation enough of a diagnosis of malnutrition if that was the only place. And so we incorporated that into a new practice of making sure we clarify with the provider to put that information of that diagnosis of malnutrition in the progress note, not just a, an electronic co-signature on a dietary note. So that's kind of um, an overview. We could talk a lot more about tracking of this information, what we can learn from it, but it gives the audience kind of an overview of what that might look like. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Um, are there any or are there some specific diagnoses that appear to be problematic for hospitals? Yes, as I mentioned above, I think I gave you maybe five different ones. I think um, sepsis is a big one, and that's sepsis two versus sepsis three criteria. Now, having said sepsis, I know we our heads spin around about this because there's a lot of attention in the clinical world around sepsis and mortality, morbidity around sepsis. But the thing is that we need to make sure that in our contracting language with that payer, there may be some language that says the payer has the ability to select the clinical criteria. You need to discuss this with the payer, with your payer contract language around that. And you may be able to, through negotiations, talk about how this can be handled better. In our contracts, they talk about appeals usually and talk about how they can deny it, and there's an appeal process. You need to make sure you outline that around these specific diagnoses, sepsis being one of them, resp acute respiratory failure, acute kidney injury or AKI or acute renal failure, the encephalopathy, the malnutrition. Those are going to be ones that are targeting and are important for you to even clarify in your contracting language that they're using a particular clinical criteria on the basis of rationale of when that diagnosis is valid or not. So I hope that kind of gives an audience 
a view of some of those. Pneumonia is another one I didn't mention in the in the list originally, but pneumonia still pops up as a problem diagnosis that is denied quite often. Great, thank you. And so we know denials can be costly to a hospital organization. What are the three key actionable steps at a high level that hospitals should take to decrease denials? Well, um, certainly tracking is a big one. You need to have this tracking ability. Now, having said that, tracking means it's prong, it's got multiple prongs to it. You need to collect the data. You need to summarize the data, present the data, and those tracking and trending. So the, the whole denial tracking piece is a big one because you need to look at your data and see it in a high level overview and, and, and down into the details as well, because that'll tell you where some problems are focusing. Just like I mentioned, these diagnoses, yeah, we can think they're probably problematic, but our collection of the denial data tells us they really are problematic. And what are some of the issues around them? So that you can then say, you know what, like I mentioned with malnutrition, we cannot just accept a co-signature on that dietary note. We have to change our practice. And the physician should be queried to put his his or her diagnosis directly in the progress note or the discharge summary, stating that that is the malnutrition diagnosis for that given patient. We put that into a new query form. So those that's an actionable step that can be made using that tracking information. Next is certainly sharing the information. We keep it within revenue cycle quite often, but don't just keep it there. You need to share it with your chief medical officer, maybe your medical executive committee, uh, maybe particular physicians in the uh, your pulmonologists, and let them know about some of these patterns and trends that are going on. We need to make sure contracting, contracting is the next um, of the three steps. So there was the tracking and trending and all the different aspects to that. There is provider awareness, communication, education, and there's that actionable step. And then there is the contracting language that may need to be looked at and reviewed. And you don't wait now to just when it's time for that contract to expire, you may have to address it now with that payer so that we can make changes and get re- good results and decrease the denials. So I hope that was good for three actionable steps. I know the question was three, but the fourth <laughs> thing I like to put in there is we got to have ongoing auditing and be proactive, both internal audits and external audits all the time, because I think those will also provide good feedback and information to be more proactive rather than reactive to denials. No, that was great. That was that was great. Thanks so much, Glorianne. And so do you have any closing comments that you'd like to share with us? Sure. Yeah, I think that uh, our topic around denials is something that we all can dive deeper into. It's not always a very comfortable topic, uh, quite honestly, but it's a reality. And there's lots of financial implications to some of these denials. As I mentioned, one of the elements to be tracking is the amount that's being taken back by the payer. And this can be substantial it can be upwards of even $12,000 for an account. Um, and you want to know what the average for your denial is. So tracking this information is going to be so, so important. Having a good process, a team, a denial management 
kind of process if you're using a software to track this who's the person and individual doing that are they entering all the correct data are we getting our denial letters to our review team in a timely manner we don't want to be going over the time limit because each of the denials does have a clock ticking on it for us to respond as hospitals so we want to make sure we're addressing that but they do typically if you're getting close to the expiration date you can contact the payer and often they will give you an extension. So that's something also to be sure you're on top of with your denial management team. I hope that um, everyone out there is going to, if they haven't been tracking their denials, trending their denials, and putting together high level overview of the patterns and trends for these denials, and then saying, let's do some correctable, solutionable actions to decrease the situation of the denials. So I hope that was helpful for the audience today. This has been great information. Thanks so much, Gloria, and really for joining us today. Um, I mean, this is such a hot topic. So I think there's a lot of valuable information in here that people can take away. Great. Well, good. I'm glad that the audience will take some things and hopefully work on their situation with their denials. Thank you for having me speak to you today. And Gloria, how best can someone reach out to you if they want to learn more or just talk about denials with you? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I, I think they could reach out on LinkedIn, but they can also contact, contact me directly. And let me give the audience that email address. It's my first name, Gloria, all one word, G-L-O-R-Y-A-N-N-E with the letter B at the end of my name, no space, Gloria B at sbcglobal.net. So if you have a question or want to chat sometime, please reach out. Fabulous. And thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. Until next time. This concludes our episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help protect and optimize revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.